Last week, we began this short two-week series, Fighting for the Family, because we believe that one of the most important fights in this moment, in this day and age, is the fight for the next generation. And while we look around us, what is probably not a surprise to any of us, is we, we can find plenty of things to fight about. In a world filled with division and polarization, we have no shortage of things to fight about. But what is more important than the topics we argue over is the people we fight for. And I believe that the most important people that we fight for is the next generation. It's the kids. It's the teenagers in our midst. And now this series that we are, we're talking about, this is not just a series for parents. It's especially for parents, but it's also for anybody who interacts with a kid or a teenager, anybody who interacts with the next generation. It's a series for parents, but it's also for grandparents. It's for aunts and uncles. It's for friends of people with kids. It's for small group leaders, and it's for teachers and coaches. Many of which in this moment have the most significant role in a kid's lives, all in different ways, working together to fight for the next generation. And so last week we began this series talking about this fight. We went to the book of Nehemiah. And in the book of Nehemiah, what Nehemiah is doing is he wants to do a rebuilding work. He has a vision for his people. And so he says, here's where we're going. Here's what we want to see God do in our midst. And so then he finds some people who are willing to rebuild the wall. And then in the midst of the tension and opposition, he then places the dads at the lowest points in the wall at the exposed places. And he says to them, now look, look behind you, right? And he says, look at your sons and your daughters, your wives, your homes. That's who you fight for. And it's in this moment that as we think about what does it mean to be the church in the 21st century? What does it mean to be a Christian in this day and age? What does it mean to follow Jesus? central to that, central to what it means for the kingdom of God to be present on earth as it is in heaven means we fight. We fight for our sons and daughters. As parents, you fight. As grandparents, you fight. As teachers, you're fighting for your classroom. As coaches, you fight for your athletes. Over the past year or so in our our house, we've been wrestling with what this looks like. If we are fighting for our kids, we've been wrestling, all right, how do we practice then following Jesus in a way that helps teach our kids how to hear from Jesus? Like if we're going to teach our kids to listen to the voice of God, what does that look like? And so we've wrestled with what does that look like for us to, to hear from Jesus and to know who Jesus says we are and then also to help reinforce that with our kids And it's in those conversations that what I've realized is that is probably the best place as a parent for you to grow in your faith. Because what what Jesus says about kids is true, like if only you have the faith of a child. And so I would suggest that as you follow Jesus in your home, you will learn more from watching your kids' faith than from even watching your own faith grow. I was recently talking with another pastor, um, seeking some insight and just how, how he leads in his congregation. So I was having a conversation with him uh, about how do, you, how do you teach your church to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Like, how do you help coach that and le- guide that and lead that on your teams and your ministry and a strategy? And so he referenced then a conversation that he had, um, asking a similar question to another pastor. And he said what, what he heard was, was really important to him and his ministry. And what was recommended was what you want to be become the culture of your church first needs to become the culture of your home. And he spoke these words to encourage, to say, all right, I, I know you want this for your congregation. I know this. I want you want this for your team. But first, it starts in your own house. 
And maybe you even look around our world and think, all right, there are some things that I see in our world that shouldn't be the way they are. And so I want things to change. I want things to change in the way our culture responds. I want things to change in my city or in my neighborhood or in my school or even in my church. I want those things to look different in how we love people and how we treat one another. And what you want to see different, that starts in your home, what you want to become culture first should become the culture in your own house. It's what happens behind your closed doors that then will eventually spill out into the lives of your neighbors and your friends and the families around you. And so then in this conversation he was having with, the, with this pastor, the pastor said, so I want, what I want you to do then, if, you, if it's going to start in your home, here's what you do. He says, when you gather around the dinner table, when everybody sits down, ask your kids, if, God sh- if Jesus showed up at our dinner table, what would he say to mom? He said, then, and then just wait. And then let them speak what comes to mind. Let them listen to the Holy Spirit and then speak what they hear from Jesus to their mother. And he says that, when you begin to do that, when you begin to practice that around the dinner table, when you begin to practice that when you're putting your kids to bed at night, what will happen is that will become the culture of your home and it will begin to to then spill out into your workplaces, into your communities, into your church. Now as parents, I think the, the funny thing about this job of parenting is none of us are really prepared for it. Right? Like when you become a parent, like you don't get much preparation for the moment you take your kids home from the hospital. Like you get maybe 48 hours in the hospital, and they're like, all right, surprise, like go ahead, you're, like you've got it. There's, there, like I, I got more training to drive a car than to raise a tiny human. Like that, that is, like how does that make sense? There's no test, there's no internship, like you're just at the hospital, like maybe you read what to expect when you're expecting, but there was not a whole lot of, of, of learning how to do that. There's no apprenticeship like in the process. you just like, all right, you have the baby, you take the baby home. They're like, good luck. You'll figure it out. Like, everybody does this. No big deal. You have Google. Like, go. go. You're, you're good. And then we get home, and we're like, like what do I do? And now, and now, now here's the secret. If you're a teenager hitting here, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Your parents probably don't want me to tell this to you, but your parents have no idea what they're doing. Like, they, they have no clue. Especially if you're the oldest teenager, they really have no idea. They're just figuring out. We've been doing this the whole time, like, just trying to figure it out and asking other people, like, oh, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Like, you, te- you text your friends, and like, we have no clue. Like, basically, our goal is to minimize how much money we're going to pay for your counseling later on. Like, that's all we're trying to do. And so here's the, here's the thing, though. Like, it, and not only did we not know what we're doing, now it's 2020. No one knows what we're doing. Like, we didn't know what we're doing. Now you add it into something that nobody who's, who's like, around, like, has ever parented in this before. And so we're trying to figure out, like, how do I do something that God has called me to do, but I feel unqualified to do? And so last week when we talked about this idea of fighting for the next generation, of fighting for our sons and our daughters, what's significant is when Nehemiah chooses people to help rebuild the wall, he chooses people who were unqualified as wall builders. Like he didn't pick the people with the most qualifications. He didn't, he didn't pick people who were good with construction. He picked, he picked preachers and he picked like fashion designers. Like he, he picked people who shouldn't be wall builders. And and here's an important truth for us as we think about parenting and leading the next generation. God isn't waiting for us to be qualified. God qualifies you on the job to do what he's called you to do. 
And so in our home, one of the significant things that I've learned as we practice listening to Jesus, there were moments in our prayer life and at bedtime, we would, we would the way we, we've been learning to pray is not just talk at Jesus, but also listen. Like, what does God want to say in us? And so we'd ask Jesus a question or we'd imagine being with Jesus and say, all right, Jesus, what do you want to do? What do you want to show us? And then pay attention to what pops into our mind or our head or what kind of image do we see as we pray. And there was a, a moment as we began doing that that it really hit me because what we began to notice is that when we would ask Jesus a question, he very often would say something that I said or my wife said or one of the books we were reading said to our kids. And there was this moment like when that would happen that you realize if you're a parent that the things my kids hear from God started with what they heard from me. Which is an incredible weight and responsibility, isn't it? Like to think that the, thing, the words that we say have a power to become the way our kids hear the voice of God. And to know that and to think that, that God actually designed it that way. That God actually designed it so the words you speak would become the way your kids hear the voice of God. Now some of you know this because of the negative Right? Some of you realize the challenges, and so you, you, you are wrestling with your own relationship with God, and you think, all right, well, how am I supposed to understand a God who never leaves us when I have a father who abandoned me? Right? And so you have those father wounds that you say, all right, I, I see how what happened when I was six or seven or eight years old, now this somehow impacts how I try to hear from Jesus and talk to Jesus and understand Jesus. Or some of you have like conversation etched into your mind of things your mother said when you were a kid. And so you can't, you can't shake those lies that you hear. And so you have these mother wounds and that you are dealing with and trying to figure out and work through as an adult. And there's a sense of, all right, now what do I do with that as a parent? The power, the responsibility, the weight that my words have when I speak to my kids. The truths you speak have the power to become the way your kids hear God. And so my encouragement to you is to speak the truth. To not reinforce the lies. To not partner with the enemy, but partner with Jesus in order to speak the truth to your kids. Jesus says, because then they will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 16. And if you're following along, we're going to start on verse 13 or you can follow along with us on the screens. I'll begin reading and we'll look at this event. And Jesus has a conversation specifically with Peter. Um, and so I want to walk, walk through this passage and just teach us a little bit about the significance of this as we fight for the next generation. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, this whole discussion that begins in verse 13 takes place in a very interesting location. The, the author, Matthew, tells us that this takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. 
Now, it's in this region that Herod the Great, um, who built the Temple of Augustus. Now, Herod the Great um, built this temple in order to worship the Caesar at that time. The Caesar, by the name of Augustus, led to him building the Temple of Augustus in order to bring fame and attention and honor and glory to Caesar. It was actually in that day that there was a statement going around, a confession that people would make giving their allegiance to Caesar, saying, Caesar is Lord. And so when we read in the New Testament and you hear the disciples say the phrase, Jesus is Lord, it's actually an incredibly countercultural phrase um, that is subverting the Roman Empire. And so Jesus now comes along, and he brings the disciples to this region of Caesarea Philippi, um, and he's, he's standing in front or nearby the area of the Temple of Augustus, which is built to bring fame and honor to Caesar. And it's actually that that it's that temple that was actually built in front of a cave that was believed to be the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. Now, it's also that same area that was considered to be um, the, where, where the Greek god Pan lived. And it was a city that was so bad in the first century that, that the rabbis would actually tell, tell um, Jewish people just not to go to that area. Like, don't even bother. Things were so wicked and broken and evil that, that you don't want to be anywhere close to it. And so people would show up, though, in that, in that region, in that time, um, in order to worship the god, um, the god Pan and to worship what was happening. And they would, it was awful acts. I'm not going to say what they are because there was kids in here or watching online. Um, so you can just Google the kind of things they did in order to worship their gods. And so Jesus shows up in that place to ha- have a very visible illustration of what the truth is in competition with. And so Jesus then in that area then showing up at the literal gates of hell points out to his disciples saying there is a power that you have that nothing can compete with. That there's a power in the words you speak, in the truth that you believe, that there is no enemy that can stop what I'm up to. And so Jesus has this incredible conversation. He says, all right, so who do people say that I am? And so, they, and so he, Peter responds. He says, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And then Jesus really gets to the point um, in order to, to center on the truth. And so Jesus has a, makes a number of different statements about who God is, about who we are, and the power that we have in order to remind the disciples of the truth that they fight with. And so it starts in verse 16 then when, when Jesus steers the conversation. Not what do other people say that I am, but Peter, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And so Peter responds with an answer that declares the truth of who God is. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now this is incredible. G- Peter is not just saying his name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title. And so he says, you're the Christ. In other words, you're the Messiah or you're the anointed one. He says, he's, he's saying that Jesus, you are the one that all of the Hebrew scriptures promised. You're the one who, who was promised to come to bring about the kingdom of heaven to earth, that your reign and your rule would be established, that you would set people free, that you would forgive sins. Jesus, you are the promised one. That's who you are. And then he adds to that. And I love that he adds to it because what, 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 what Peter adds is you are the son of the living God. Now this is incredible because it's actual, actually a subtle dig at the gods of that region. Right? In that region, as they're worshiping the Greek gods um, and, and worshiping Pan and, they're, and they're, they, they, there's the gateway to the underworld, what, what Peter is doing, he's saying, our God is not like other gods. Like, all, all, all of these other people, they're worshiping dead gods. But us, 
Now, we worship the son of the living God. And you may think there is power in these other gods, um, but the enemy can't win a battle against the living God. He says, this is who God is. And so then with that truth and, and Peter confessing that truth, then Jesus speaks to Peter in order to remind him who he is. He says, Peter, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He's speaking identity to Peter. Peter believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And Jesus says, now, now that you know who I am, let me tell you who you are. And so he says, you are Peter, um, which, which is actually a play on words. The, wor- the name Peter actually means rock or rocky. So he's saying, you are rocky. You are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Saying that, Peter, when, when, when you realize who you are, watch what I'm going to do through you. Now, this isn't about how incredible Peter is. Like, Peter, like, not long after this, Jesus also calls Peter the devil. Um, but but this, is, this is about something that when Peter believes the truth of who Jesus is, then it changes who Peter is. And when Peter lives in that identity, the Christian church is here today because of Peter living in light of who he really is. And Jesus reinforces that when he points out the power that Peter has, the power we all have. He says the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Imagine hearing that when you could look at the gates of Hades. Like imagine hearing that when hell was right there next to you. And maybe that's not that hard to imagine, right? A hell on earth. When things are broken, when you can look around and see evil and immorality, when you see things that are clearly evidence that things aren't the way they should be. And what what Jesus is saying to Peter, it's in that moment, know what you fight for and know you won't lose this fight. As parents, when you fight, when you fight for your kids, Know that there is a power and the gates of hell can't stop the power of the truth that you speak over your kids. Jesus speaks of that power when he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. In other words, as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to give you keys that because you follow me, you have an authority. There's an authority in the words you speak that when you speak truth, it will do something. And so when your kids are believing a lie about who they are, you have keys, and no one will have more opportunities to use those keys than you will in your kid's life. When your kids say, well, I'm a bad kid, or no one likes me, you have the keys, and you can speak truth to unlock the chains that are speaking those lies to them. When when your kids are overwhelmed with guilt because they've done something wrong, because they've said something wrong, because they've made a choice they regret, No one will have more opportunities than you will as a parent to then take those keys and speak words that set them free. To remind them that they are loved, that they are forgiven. That they're loved by you and they're loved by God. When your kids are paralyzed in fear because of what they're experiencing, of what they're trying to figure out, the decisions they're trying to make, no one will experience more opportunities than you will to speak the truth into those moments, to remind your kids that you and their heavenly Father is fighting for them. And so the question is, are you ready to fight? Are you ready to fight for your kids? To fight for your kids, to fight for your grandkids, to fight for your friends' kids, to fight for your small group, to fight for your classroom, 
Because when you fight for them, you unleash the power of the kingdom of God into their life, and the gates of hell can't stand up against it. Speak the truth, remind the truth, reinforce that truth, because it's that truth that Jesus says, then they will know the truth. Then your kids will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. At this time, I want to invite Ashley Tasha to come forward. Um, I invited Ashley to share. Ashley helps lead um, our Faith Kids team. She leads our elementary team um, for, for all that happens with, with our kindergarten through grade five. She's also an incredible mom, and she's going to share her heart um, about identity and speaking this truth over our kids, and she lives and breathes this, and so there's no one better for you to listen to share that today. If you would, welcome Ashley. Thanks. <clears throat> Recently, our family watched through all four of Disney's Toy Story films. And in the most recent one, Toy Story 4, a new character emerges by the name of Forky. And Forky is the creation (laughs) of a kindergartner named Bonnie and made out of bits of garbage and looks like this. So he's got like one eye that can't land. Um, But so, (laughs) sorry. But at the moment where, Woody, or where Forky comes to life, he seems very confused about who he is, constantly referring to himself as trash and taking every opportunity that he can to escape back to an actual trash can. So then Woody comes along, an endearing main character, who is spending most of the film trying to convince Forky that he is in fact not trash but rather the beloved toy of a creative little girl. Now, if I am completely honest with you, there are a lot of times in my life where my narrative sounds a lot like Forky's. Maybe I don't call myself trash, but things like I'm a disappointment, people don't really like me if they knew me, I'm not good enough, I'm failing as a mom. The list goes on for me. But it's the I'm failing as a mom one that seems to just hit hardest because that one doesn't just involve me, it involves my kids. Because I want them to know every single moment of every single day how incredibly loved they are by me. I want to cherish them constantly. I want to bring all the fun into our home and have all the joy that I possibly can. But there are days where I fail at all of it fail. Maybe I'm snippy because I'm just having a bad day and I'm off. Or maybe I'm impatient because as incredible as my husband is, there's a lot of days where he isn't home. And parenting alone is hard and it's exhausting. Maybe I'm discouraged because I don't know how to pandemic homeschool. I have no idea how to do it. And I'm constantly questioning whether or not I'm failing my kids. Or maybe it's because I'm living in a world right now filled with fear, uncertainty, anger, and so much division that I just want to distract myself from it all. Because when I try and make sense of it, I just can't. It's on these days where I find it feels like I'm fighting an uphill battle to live in the truth of who I really am, let alone leading and loving my kids towards that truth for themselves. So this year, I've been reminded over and over again that the words we speak 
have the power to change our narrative, our narrative that has been established and rooted in us since childhood. But I'm learning right now as a parent that the words we speak, the truth that we speak over our kids has the power to become their narrative. We have the opportunity to shape and create that for them. So let me explain. As I've been hearing from Jesus about what my time in front of you would look like, I've continued to hear the word saturate over and over again. And I know that you all know the definition of it, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. The definition is to cause something to become thoroughly soaked with liquid so that no more can be absorbed. Hang on to that, so that no more can be absorbed. I believe Jesus wants us to saturate ourselves and the next generation in truth. Not only the truth of who he is, but also the truth of who we are to him. The truth of who our kids are to him. So that there is no room for lies to creep in and take root. What if we could raise up kids whose identity is so saturated in the truth of who God says they are, that there is zero room to absorb the lies that the enemy tries to speak over them in a moment where their sin nature rises to the surface. Because it will, right? They are the most adorable little sinners. What if our kids were so saturated in the truth of who he says they are that in a given moment their narrative doesn't turn to questioning their worth and their identity, but rather affirming who they are in Jesus Christ? I heard a story once about a man who was badly injured and hospitalized. And during his time in the hospital, he realized that his wrestling career, his high school wrestling career was over. And he was incredibly angry and bitter about this, and he let everybody in the place know it. But there was one nurse in particular who continued to show up and speak truth and love over him. She boldly let him know that it wasn't just his leg that needed healing, but his heart as well. And he was super angry about that. So angry that he fired hurtful, cruel insults at her. And now this man being in his 60s, when he looks back on this moment, he remembers that it was as as if his words dropped at her feet. As if they fell flat. His words were never absorbed by her. And as a high schooler, he recognized that, knew it, and it changed the rest of his life. So what would the world look like if our kids grew up to be adults who lived like this nurse? To be so rooted in truth and to have it so ingrained in the very core of their being that when they make a mistake or when someone speaks against who they are, Their narrative isn't I am and then shame statements, but rather I am in truth. I made a mistake, but I am forgiven. I'm still worthy. I'm loved just as I am. I'm a child of God. I'm good enough. What if instead of absorbing all the hurt and pain this world throws at them, they are able to filter it through the lens of who God says they are? The lie would dissipate. It would drop because there is, they are so saturated with truth that there is absolutely no room for anything to come at that truth that isn't that truth. 
There's no room for that lie to be absorbed by them because they're so saturated in the truth of who God says they are. It's almost as if those words would hit a shield in front of them. And you guys, I believe that this would change the world if kids grew up into adults who could live this way. So what does this look like in our lives? How do we saturate kids with truth? Well, I'm going to ask you a few questions, and then you can decide where you want to go from here. The first one is, who does Jesus say your kids are? Do you know? Have you asked him? And if so, have you told them? Do you call it out in them when you see it, or when you hear it in that still, small voice? Let me encourage you, call it out in them every single time you see it, and especially when you don't. Because that is when they need to be reminded of it the most. Like, (laughs) the choices you're making are not good ones. Your behavior is frustrating me. But your behavior doesn't define you. Jesus does. You are outrageously loved. Hand me the car keys, or hand me the phone, or hand me the switch. (laughs) When you think about your role as a parent, let me challenge you to be like Woody. Be persistent in saturating your kids with truth. So when they are stuck in a lie, you fight for them with truth. When they are coming at you and they're saying, I'm not good enough, mm-mm. you remind them you are good enough. You are enough. When they come at you and they tell you I'm unlovable or they act unlovable, you remind them, mm-mm. You are outrageously loved. Fight to bring them back to the truth and carry them if you have to. Exhaust yourselves. Ring yourselves out speaking truth over them. Here's what I'll say to you. You'll know you're making progress when you speak truth to your kids and they hit a point where they're like, I know, Mom. Ugh, you say it all the time. Goals. That is your goal, to hit that point with your kid. Last question, and probably the most important one. If you hear anything that I say up here today, I hope it's this. Do you know who Jesus says you are? Have you asked him? If so, do you believe it? Because here's what all of this comes down to. It all begins with us. With us and our own identity. As a parent, know that it's often what your kids will see in you that will influence what they believe about themselves. There is a disconnect if we as parents are speaking all this truth over our kids, but unable to believe and receive it for ourselves. A few years ago, oh, and I know this because I've been there again. A few years ago, my son was a year old at the time, and I'd put him in, into his crib for bed. And in that moment, I just kind of knelt down by his crib and was looking up at him as he leaned over the edge, drooling and giggling at me. And in that moment, I was so overwhelmed by love for this little boy that I reached my hands through the slats of his crib, grabbed his chunky little legs, and I was like, do you have any idea how much I love you? Like, any idea? Of course, he's drooling and giggling at me. He had no idea. But in that moment... 
I feel like I am a work in progress when it comes to hearing from God. But in that moment, he spoke to my heart so clearly. And as I was asking my one-year-old, do you have any idea how much I love you? God was like, do you? Ash, do you have any idea how much I love you? Because the way you see this little boy is the way I see you. The way you love this little boy is the way I love you, though my love is even greater. The way you want this little boy to believe and receive how loved he is by you is the way I want you to believe and receive how loved you are by me. You see, I did not know. And now I am intentionally growing in hopes to understand that truth better and better every single day. So here's my hope for us. May we raise the next generation to know who God is and who they are in him and to him. May we raise up warriors who fight lies with truth. And may it all begin with us, discovering, believing, and understanding for ourselves the truth that we are the beloved masterpiece of a creative God. Because it is through us receiving that truth for ourselves that our kids will believe it for themselves and change the world. Let's pray. God, you know that we need change in this world. And so may it begin with us. May we fight to believe and receive the truth of who you say we are. That our kids would see that in us and want it for themselves. May we raise up kids who live and rest in the truth of who you say they are. That no matter what comes at them in this life, Lord, that they stand and they are rooted in truth. And may it change the world. We love you. Amen.